0: Black Bibles are on the chairs. It's page number 1071. 1071. I appreciate your patience uh, with me this week. I'm still recovering from uh, the flu. I'm not going to say this. I uh, I got sick um, last Friday night and um, uh, was in bed for about 48 hours and um, thought I was getting better, and then um, and then I wasn't. Uh, so, so I went to the doctor on Thursday. This is day four of my, uh, my, my steroids and, and all that. So hopefully, hopefully I'll be better soon. Uh, but I may start hacking and coughing in the middle of the sermon. And I appreciate your, uh, your patience um, as I'm working my way through that. So we're in James, uh, and this new series that we began a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, is called Show Me. Uh, because James is all about action. James is all about evidence. James is all about proof. I don't get the idea that James was some sort of um, ivory tower academic. I'm not not knocking ivory tower academics because I have a foot in that world too. Uh, But he's he's not sitting in some office somewhere just writing these academic treatises that are very theoretical in nature. Uh, James is a man of action who wants to say, put up. say. I think I said that backwards. He wants to challenge us to do what we say. And the central passage in the book of James is in chapter 2, where he says that we are to show our faith in God with our works. That how we live our Christian life ought to be the testimony, it ought to be the evidence, it ought to be the proof that we are who we say. So James says, all right, I hear you. You say that you believe in Jesus. Show me your faith by showing me your works. And the the entire book of James is kind of built upon that idea. And so there's a lot of different topics that are covered in the book of James. We started by talking about suffering. And James said, show me your faith by showing me how you suffer. And then last week, Sean preached on temptation. And it's the idea of show me your faith by showing me how you resist or at least do battle against your temptations. And James continues that discussion today. Show me, show me. We're gonna start in verse 19 and we're gonna go through the end of the chapter. So if you've got uh, your Bible, (coughs) excuse me, on page 1071, you can follow along with me. I'm gonna read these verses and then we will dive in together. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. <clears throat> but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. <coughs> For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Show me your faith by doing the word. That's what James says to us through this passage before us. Show me your faith by doing the word. Now, if you, if you look at the text, if you look at verses 19 through 27, they're kind of, especially in the, uh, in the translation that I believe we're all using, Broken up into three sort of paragraphs. Verses 19 through 21 is a section, verses 22 to 25 is a section, and then the last two verses, 26 and 27, are a section. And I want to start with the middle section. The reason why I want to do that is because the the ancient biblical writers frequently uh, employed a literary technique called chiasmus. What that is, is it's based off of the Greek word or the Greek letter chi, and they would try to uh, it was sort of like A B C B A, and so so they would. It's, it's like you're, you're drawing an arrow, and then you're going back out, and the outer parts mirror what's on the on the other part of that mirror. And the important part about a chiasmus is that whatever is in the middle, whatever is in the center, is the most important part. The biblical writers used this literary technique under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what that means for us in this passage is that they're trying to say, okay, at the beginning, it's talking about moral issues. At the end, it's talking about moral issues. At the beginning, it's talking about sins of the tongue and relational stuff. At the end, it's talking about relational stuff in the tongue, practical Christianity. But what does it talk about in the middle? What does it talk about in the center? It talks about doing the word. So I'm going to start at the center of the chiasmus and work our way out from there, okay? Because James wants us to get what's in the center, because when we get what's in the center, we'll get what's on the edges. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. So verse 22 says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Chances are you know quite a bit of stuff. We live in an educated society. Whether you've been formally educated, whether you've been educated by your social media feed, whether you've been educated by your friends, your neighbors, your family members, we all have these influences that are educating us, that are shaping us. And if you are a typical adult, again, whether you've been formally educated or not, you know a lot of stuff. Maybe some of you are more streetwise, street savvy. Maybe some of you are more formally educated. Either way, it doesn't matter. You know and have acquired a lot of information. You know stuff. But sometimes what many of us do is we just let that information kind of rattle around in our brains. And we don't do much with it. We could pass a test. We could sit down and have a cup of coffee and impress someone with how much we know. But a lot of times that information just stays on a theoretical level and it doesn't flow out through our hands to actually do anything. That's what James is getting at in this verse. <clears throat> he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. The way he writes it strikes us as odd. When I think of doing The word. That's not normally the way that, at least in English, we would finish a sentence, right? To say, oh, do the word. What does that mean? Do the word. Like we'll say, hey, T.C., do a good job playing the keyboard. Or Katie, do a good job at your work. Or, you know, do a good job at your interview this week. But we don't normally talk in the language of do the word. What does that mean? (coughs) What he's calling us to do is, first of all, to hear it. The Hebrew culture that James was writing to, they had a lot of oral tradition. They were used to being able to memorize entire books of the Old Testament and recite them to one another. This was how they preserved the Bible. Now, they also had scribes who painstakingly wrote it down. But but before printing presses, uh, those those sorts of of copies and those scrolls, those were pretty rare. And so you'd have... These Jews who are memorizing entire books of the Bible and James is writing what is probably the first book of the New Testament so he's he's writing in a culture and and a tradition that's still pretty much Jewish and he's writing to people who are used to hearing the word they've heard it read aloud they've heard it recited aloud they've recited it aloud themselves they've been been trying to train their kids by by reciting it to them and and teaching their kids to memorize it Sonia's got a, a verse written on our our marker board in our uh, kitchen, (coughs) very simple verse, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We're trying to get our kids to memorize that this week. And uh, um, yeah, anyway, um, so uh, the Jewish people would do that too, right? Saying these things out loud so that we hear it. But he says, you can't stop at that step. It's not enough simply to hear the word. Because hearing on its own does not lead to transformation. All hearing does is gives you new content. Fills your brain with new data. Hearing itself is not enough. You have to be a doer of the word. He says in verse 22, if you only hear the word and you don't do it, you're deceiving yourself. And here's why. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone who looks at his own face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Chances are you and I have spent a lot of our lives in front of a mirror. Cumulatively. We get up in the morning, we shower, some of us shave, some of us put on makeup. We do different things to try to beautify ourselves to try to clean up for work or for our spouse or whatever reason we want to try to look good. Now, if you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I need to shave or yeah, I should, I should put some makeup on or I should just comb my hair or yeah, clearly, clearly I need to shower. I've still got like food from three days ago caked kicked on my face. And you, you make all of these mental observations Like, I see, I see in the mirror who I truly am. And then you're like, sweet. Now let me put my coat on. and let me go to work. Without combing my hair, without shaving or doing the makeup or showering or any of those things, that the mirror clearly demonstrated that I needed to do. Now, most of us wouldn't do that because we take pride in how we look you know, I can't show up to work looking like that. They're not going to let you wait tables if you come in looking that way, right? There are standards, especially in professional working environments, where it's like, no, you're going to have to, you've got to straighten that tie, Sean. Like, you can't just come into the bank looking like that, right? James said, when we look in the mirror and we see who we truly are, but then we walk away without changing, we deceive ourselves. he says, that's what it is when we hear the word, but don't do it. Now, it can be confusing because James is mixing a lot of metaphors here, but he's He's talking talking about hearing the word as if the word is our mirror. So, So we look into the mirror, that's hearing the word, that's hearing the truth. And when I look into the mirror, I'm exposed to the truth of my existence, of what I look like. And I'm faced with a decision. Do I do anything about what I have seen or do I not? I think another analogy is a scale. In 2017, um, (coughs) I decided to try to be more serious about my health, and I lost 20 pounds. The way I did it was by weighing every single day. And the way I've kept the weight off so far is by I have continued that habit and that discipline. I've weighed every single day for like the last. Because what happens is when I step on the scale, every morning, it's like looking in the mirror and I say, oh, I'm off like a pound or two from my target weight. So I have to make a change this week. I have to do something different this week. I could say, oh, I'm two pounds off of where I need to be. Let me go grab some donuts. Let me go back to Popeye's again, or I can let the scale or the mirror, in the example of James, be the reality check that I need. It says, here is who you truly are. Now you can go do something about it. We are called not just to hear the word. We are called not just to receive data from the Holy Spirit, but we are called to apply it. We are called to do it. Verse 25 says, the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. I think it's interesting that James describes a law as something that is free. In America, at least, we're kind of anti-institutional, anti-government, anti-laws in general. We don't like laws. We want to stick to the man. James... Kind of goes countercultural, and he's like, There is a freedom that comes from submitting to a law. In this case, the law is the word of God. And it might feel like you're boxed in, it might feel like you're constricted and you can't do what you want, but this is where true freedom is it's in the law. Our kids, when they're young, they push and they push and they push a times they just want to know where the boundary is. They feel more secure when the parents draw lines. And so the kids are going to push until their parents draw those lines. And when those lines are drawn, it helps the kids to feel secure. Helps them to feel safe. Here's the boundary. Here's, here's where true freedom is. James says, when you look intently into the perfect law of freedom... To me that that speaks of of really grappling and studying this mirror, this word that he's talking about. We grapple with this word, we study it intently. That doesn't mean it like I read a verse a day on my Bible app. You know, I get a notification, it says, Here's your verse of the day, cool. Took me 30 seconds to read it, moving on. Is that intently studying the word? Probably not. I don't think so. Not by any definitions that I know of. Instead, we we look intently into this perfect law of freedom. And as we submit ourselves to the law, we paradoxically become free. And when we persevere in it, when we stick to it, and we're not a forgetful hearer, but we're a doer who works, we'll be blessed in what we do. James is very practical. This book is not rocket science. He's saying, show me your faith by doing the work. You say you've got faith in Jesus? Show me. Show me. Now see, a lot of us, <clears throat> we do this backwards. In America, we have been very good at um, developing lots of ways <coughs> of delivering data to Christians. And we have, we have a, um, an embarrassment of riches um, in this country where we have um, all of these, this access. You can watch any great famous preacher on TV You can get podcasts, you can read magazines, like there's Google, right? There's all kinds of, a wealth of information out there. And so we have become good at learning stuff. Now don't hear me, uh, don't hear me saying we shouldn't learn stuff, because that's a key part of discipleship. But James would never be content if all we do is learn stuff. We don't do anything with it. Maybe you say, but Stephen, I know all the intricacies of this complex Bible doctrine. I know the right way to interpret the book of Revelation. I know the difference between reform doctrine and Arminian doctrine. I know, I know why you should do this or why you should do that. I'm not saying any of those things aren't important. It's important to go deep in God's word. It's important to follow it out. What James is saying in this passage, he sandwiches this discussion about doing the word with practical discussions about controlling our tongue, about loving people, about taking care of widows and orphans. What James would say is, I hear, I hear you, and I hear you think you know all of this biblical stuff, but what does your life look like? Are you able to speak tenderly to the people that you live with? Are you able to be meek? with your co-workers? Or are you so intent on proving that you know so much stuff about the Bible? James says, if you are merely a hearer and not a doer, you are deceiving yourselves and you are not wise. Happiness, blessedness, that's the idea, comes when we not only hear the word, but when we do it. So the the central part of this text focuses us on receiving this implanted word. This word that goes down deep within us, but it doesn't change us by osmosis. If you put your Bible underneath your pillow before you go to sleep, and you're like, this will work slid it underneath my pillow. I'll put another Bible on top of my head so that it. I'm getting like a twofer. It's not going to work. And you know that. I know that. We all know that. That's not at all how it works. We don't just hear it. We don't just sort of let it seep into us. We do it. We obey it. That's the middle Passage. Now let's talk about the beginning and the ending two sections that sort of mirror one another I was reading a New York Times article uh, this week on raising your kids without the concept of sin It was a uh, it was not a news article. It was a like an opinion column uh, In the New York Times. I don't remember the um, name of the woman who who wrote it uh, but she was arguing uh, why you should raise your kids without the concept of sin. <coughs> she was talking about how she was doing that. Uh, it was a very sad and tragic story on uh, on many levels. She shared her history, she shared her story. Uh, she shared her struggle of, of uh, feeling abandoned and betrayed by the church. And on some levels, I could appreciate and sympathize uh, with her struggle and with the injustice that she had faced. On another level, I disagreed with almost... All of I think I disagreed with everything that she proposed as a solution. But what was most fascinating to me uh, in the article was that she actually does believe in sin. The headline was uh, raising your kids without a concept of sin. Um, but in the article, she said, I actually do believe that there is one sin, and it's lack of civic engagement. Um, and so she was teaching her kids that they had to be civically engaged. They had to uh, vote, they had to march, they had to petition, they had to do all of these things, uh, because to do otherwise was sinful. Now, if you want to march and vote and sign petitions, I'm not against any of that, okay? But what was fascinating to me in the article is that from somewhere, she pulled out a construct that she called sin. She even used the word sin. But the headline is, Raising My Kids Without a Concept of Sin. Then when you really get to it in the heart of the article, she's like, actually, there is sin. Here it is. And I was like, that's fascinating. Where do you come up with your criteria of what sin is? Where do you come up with your definition of what sin is? Sin is a loaded word. Sin is a hard word. How do you define what sin is? She was more than comfortable with defining sin on her own terms she did. She had one sin. She was going to teach her kids not to do it, but she was going to try to leave all the religious stuff out. You know, many of us, maybe all of us, aren't just like her. We probably wouldn't write a New York Times op-ed piece and say, I'm ditching the concept of sin. But we do the exact same thing that she did. Here's why. We get creative with our definitions of sin. We pick and choose selectively which teachings of Jesus we want to follow and which ones we do not. We say, Well, I didn't really sin over here. I just, you know, I wasn't angry, I was just frustrated. Or, Yeah, I know. I know I should have done that thing, but I had a bad day. I think Sean talked about this last week in his sermon. Well, everybody does it. It's New York. This is just the way you have to live here. And we creatively redefine our sin. Some parts of the Bible we just don't talk about, we just skip over them. This is one of the reasons why we are committed as often as possible to preaching through books of the Bible here at Mosaic because it doesn't give us the freedom. Because I face that temptation too. I'm like, I I don't want to preach about that. That's hard to talk about. But when we preach through books, I have to preach about whatever comes next, right? Like it or not. And that brings us all under the authority of God's word. So that when we come to the issue of sin, we're having to define sin on God's terms, not on our own terms. I am just like the woman in that op-ed article. I want to define sin creatively. I want to define sin on my own terms. I want to skirt around the issues, and if you're honest, you do too. This is human nature. But God calls us to a different standard. The part at the beginning of this passage and the part at the end of this passage, the part that's sandwiched around the center of the chiasmus It deals with very practical sin stuff that a lot of us may not really want to talk about as sin. Look at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Now, um, many of us are probably good at doing it backwards. We are slow to listen. We are quick to speak. And we are quick to anger. Because we think that human anger actually does accomplish the righteousness of God. Now I struggled with this on Monday. Monday morning is laundry day. You know, I I had the flu, but I was still trying to go do laundry at the laundromat. uh, Maybe I did it Sunday afternoon, I forget. Uh, But anyway, I always start my sermon prep at the laundromat. That's my weekly ritual, okay? So for about an hour and a half, I'm at the laundromat with my Bible, maybe a study book, and I have an hour and a half there where I'm going to start working on it. So I'm reading about being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen at the laundromat. Now, laundromats can sometimes get crazy. Some of you have experienced that. Um, And so you're not always in the best frame of mind when you're leaving the laundromat anybody experienced that. Uh, and so I go back home and I'm thinking about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Um, and honestly, the first thing I did when I got home was I got angry at Sonia and the kids. I can say, well, I had the flu, I had a rough hour and a half of the longer that. It's cold outside. But if I'm honest with my sin, And this is what Sean talked about last week. My sin comes from within. I can't blame it on the devil. I can't blame it on the other people at the laundromat. My sin comes from within me. And that's scary. That's ugly. And that's why we have to look into the mirror of God's word. Because it's only there where I see myself as I really am. I like the the stained glass window version of Stephen where everything is like airbrushed and nice. It's like Pastor Stephen. But that's not the version that God looks at. And he's not looking at a stained glass version of you. He's looking at you and he says, today, were you quick to listen? Were you slow to speak? Were you slow to anger? Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. To go back earlier, we were talking about knowing doctrine really well. I think James would say, if you know doctrine really well, but you can't speak lovingly to others, you're not really as mature as you think. In fact, I think James would push us so strongly in this passage, he would say, Are you sure you have faith? You know doctrine, but based on your tongue, Are you sure you're a Christian? That's how strong James is pushing us in this book. Show me your faith by showing me your works. So he talks about managing our tongue, and the tongue is going to be a sort of recurring theme throughout the book of James. Chapter 3, it'll talk about um, how nobody can control the tongue and how how we grapple with this and how we try to bring it Under the authority of God's word. Because we often say. Words. That are sinful. We gossip. We slander. We say angry, biting, devouring words. We lie. James calls us to bring our tongues. Into submission. To the lordship of Jesus. And even more than our tongue. Our heart. Because you could get really drastic. And cut out your tongue. But your heart can still be full of anger. And that's why he doesn't just talk about listening, speaking. He talks about being angry because this is in the heart, right? You could shut me off in a monastery where I never have any interaction with any other people. There are no annoying people at the laundromat. I'll still get angry because it comes from here, not from there. The other people are convenient scapegoats. human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Then he moves from talking about um, relational issues and sins of the tongue to speaking of moral issues. Verse 21, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So James is talking about (coughs) moral filth. He's writing to the first Christians. They are people who would have been super familiar with all of the Old Testament laws, with the sexual ethic of the Old Testament, which taught that sexuality was a beautiful gift that had been created by God for his people to enjoy, for human beings to enjoy, and that it was to be enjoyed within the confines of a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. This was God's teaching. It was his teaching for thousands of years to the Jewish people. It's the teaching that Jesus. Reinforced when he arrived. And it's the teaching that James is standing upon as he writes this verse. And he calls the people to rid themselves of moral filth. To pursue purity. To pursue moral holiness. Now, the reality is that if you have spent any time in church, you know what the Bible says about sexual immorality. Chances are you don't need somebody to tell you this you don't need somebody to tell you to stop living with someone outside of marriage. You don't need someone to tell you not to cheat on your spouse. You don't need someone to say, hey, did you know that looking at pornography is a sin? We already know all of that. The issue is not what we don't know. The issue is what we won't do. James says, we've heard the word now it's time to do the word. He says, away the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly receive the implanted word because it is able to save your souls. We receive it and the idea of reception of the word carries the idea of, of bowing before it and submitting to it. I'm not just receiving it like, yeah, okay, I hear it. But like, yeah, I have to obey this. I have to do this. God's people are called to live countercultural lives, and these, there's nothing more countercultural than these two verses right here. Do you think it's pretty countercultural to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, to relationally be a good person? I think it's pretty countercultural to rid yourself of moral filth when we live in a, in a in a society that's more sex in the city than it is what God calls us to do. James says, receive the implanted word of God. Because this is how we change. A lot of times we want to argue over specifics. And I hear people telling me all the time, they're like, you know, I just got to study something out. I got I to do some more study on that. What that normally means is, I'm trying to find a creative way to get out my sin. I've heard what It says but I'm looking for another option. I'm looking for door number three, but James is not about door number three. He says, receive the word and do it. Obey it. If you're not willing to do it, James says, where's your faith? Are you sure you have faith? That's the beginning. And then he segues into the middle, into the heart of the passage by talking about receiving the implanted word. Then he circles back at the end, verse 26, kind of mirroring some of the same conversations from the beginning. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. James says, you think they're religious? Or better, I know a lot of people don't like to say they're religious nowadays. They like to say they're spiritual. I'm spiritual. Everybody tells me they're spiritual. Uh, (coughs) They might mean by that they do yoga or or they uh, meditate or they go to church or they light candles or whatever. Everybody means something different by that. But like 99 10 times out of 100, people tell me I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Um, okay, you think you're spiritual, James says, but you don't control your tongue. Your spirituality is useless and you're deceiving yourself. James is like, I don't care how much you meditate. If you're lacerating... Verbally, the people that are in your life. How dare you say you're spiritual? You come to church. You dress up. I I don't mean like really dress up. I know we're not like a super dress up church, but we dress up metaphorically, right? (laughs) We act spiritual on Sundays. Dress up for the people around us. But Monday to Saturday, we're hurting people with our words. James says, I'm not sure that that's real faith. It's definitely not true religion. It's definitely not true spirituality. Then he says, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think it's interesting that there are are two themes in this verse that different sets of Christians like to focus on. The first part we could call issues of justice, caring for orphans and widows. Some Christians really resonate with those ideas and they're like, yeah, we ought to be doing something practical to care for people, to do justice in our world. And there's an entire uh, part of the Bible, uh, especially like the minor prophets, that really resonates with that call to do justice Care for orphans and widows. Then other Christians would zero in on the second half of the verse. Like, we just need to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Let's pursue holiness. Let's pursue purity of life. What I think is interesting is that James doesn't give us that option, he puts them together spirituality and justice. Your own inner life. And your life out on the streets. Your life out in the world. We do justice and we pursue personal holiness. They go together. And one informs the other. You are able to do justice best when you pursue holiness in your own life first. We look after orphans and widows. We care for the vulnerable. Been a rough couple of weeks in my estimation for caring for the vulnerable um, specifically the unborn uh, there have been laws passed um, here in new york that have um, provided greater um, access to late-term abortions in our state different landmarks in our city uh, were made um, in pink um, lights, lighting, um, to celebrate this. I'm all about empowering women and I know that that was how the issue was couched. I'm all about celebrating and empowering women, um, but I don't think that we do that at the cost of the vulnerable, the unborn. If you haven't noticed, the governor of Virginia is mired in a few different scandals this week, which will probably take him down, I don't know, maybe he's resigned by now. He had resigned this morning when I got up and saw the news. But one of the issues that has tripped him up this week is that he was caught on camera talking about the potential of infanticide. And he said, um, he was talking about abortion and what happens if during the course of an abortion the child survives and is born. What do we do? And he said, well, we set the baby to the side. We'll try to keep it comfortable. And we have a conversation with the parents about whether or not we should what any civilized country would call infanticide. its Barbaric. And it's starting to pass for mainstream thought in America. Now, in case you're thinking this is new, it's not. Christianity was born into a culture that did exactly the same thing. It was very common. Infanticide was very common in the Roman empire. Babies would be born and it was called exposure. You just kind of expose them to the elements, they will die. Rodney Stark, the sociologist from Baylor University, talks about one of the reasons that Christianity took off in the first century and grew exponentially was because Christians had a different approach to caring for the vulnerable, in particular caring for infants who had been abandoned and for people who got the plague. So Christianity was an urban movement in the first century. And when the cities were being hit by the plagues and where people were abandoning their babies, and they're running to the suburbs to survive, running to the countryside to get away from the plague. The Christians stayed, And they adopted those babies. And they sought to nurse their neighbors back to health. So when their neighbors, some of them, ended up surviving, many of them became Christians. And Rodney Stark links this with the exponential growth of Christianity in the first century. What the Christians did was they showed a countercultural way of life. They showed that the way of Jesus is different and it's better. Because they took this idea that undergirds orphan care and widow care, essentially, is caring for the bone. And they took that seriously in the first century. Now, as we wrap this up, I think James would resonate with the Nike slogan just do it. We've heard a lot of stuff. My my dad, many of you met my dad before he passed away. He's a pastor for close to 30 years. And I heard him preach this over and over again. Uh, Kind of drilled into my mind. He said, American Christians are educated far beyond our level of obedience. I'm all for more classes. In a minute we're going to announce a a new class we're going to do coming up. Um, But I'm not under the idea that if you just attend this class, going to be more spiritual because my dad understood and he taught me that we are educated beyond our level of obedience what is needed is not so much that we learn new stuff but that we obey what we already know because james is not impressed by what you know you could be like but james i know this and i know this and i know this and james is like yeah but i know jesus he was my brother like, there's, there's nothing we can bring to the table where we're like, yo, we know more than you do, James. He knew Jesus in the flesh. He grew up with him. He knew him before he was famous. All right? It's like, I'm not impressed by what you know. But I will be impressed by what you do. Now, it's at this point that many of us can feel overwhelmed and despair. We're like, all right, the preacher's telling me to do, do. Do. And I'm trying, and I have tried. And I failed, Like he's talking about controlling your tongue, he's talking about moral filth, he's talking about all this stuff. And I tried because I've heard the word, and I'm trying to do the word, and it's not working. I'm struggling. I'm failing. Where does that lead me? Just try harder. And I think this is where I want to go back to what Sean was talking about when he led communion earlier. He talked about the Book of Hebrews and said that Jesus was our tempted and he was tried. You see, it's not so much what you know about Bible content, it's who you know. And I know the one who was tempted and tried for me. I know the one who broke sin's curse for me. I know the one who is right now interceding and praying in heaven for me. He's my only hope for today. He's my only hope for being slow to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. He's my only hope for avoiding moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. He's the only hope that I have to do justice in the world and pursue personal holiness and purity in my life. He's all I got. There is no plan B. There is no other option. I think what God is calling us to do through the writings of James in this passage is he's calling us to lean in and embrace Jesus, and embrace Jesus' people. We talked about this in, in our small group yesterday, that in order to beat sin, God gives us a variety of different things. He gives us the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, convicting us. He gives us the Word of God, which we've just talked about, doing it, right? Receiving the implanted Word. He also gives us the community. He puts us in one another's lives to speak truth into one another's lives, because As I said yesterday, if left to myself, I will drive off the cliff. And so we are prone to wander, as the song says, prone to leave the God we love. So that's why this gathering is important. That's why we take communion and remember what Jesus has has done. That's why we gather in our small groups. That's why we speak into one another's lives. Because this is how Jesus comes near to us through the Holy Spirit through the word, through the community. This is how we do the word, by receiving it, embracing it, obeying it. So I want to leave you with two questions. First off, what do you know? What do you know about the Bible? Many of you are at different stages of your spiritual journey. Some of you may know a lot. Some of you may have been to seminary. Some of you may know just a little because you're just starting out, and that's cool. But everybody knows something. So my second question is, what are you going to do with what you know? What do you know, and what are you gonna do? Let's be doers